This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, December 2nd. I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, Omicron variant detected in Colorado, Telluride adds affordable housing development incentive, multiple public access AEDs reported missing, and a mountain weather forecast. The Omicron variant of the coronavirus has been detected in Colorado in Arapahoe County. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment announced the news Thursday afternoon. Colorado is the third state in the U.S. to detect a case of the variant. San Miguel County hasn't detected any cases yet, but Public Health Director Grace Franklin says the region should be prepared to have Omicron cases in the future. But, she adds, that shouldn't be a cause for panic because there's not enough information to really um, determine how much we might need to shift our behaviors or approaches currently. Franklin spoke on KOTO on Thursday. Based on the limited knowledge so far available, Omicron appears to be outcompeting the Delta variant. But it's still unknown whether it leads to more severe illness and how it holds up against vaccines. Franklin says the variant is a reminder we're not out of the woods yet. It's really a call to action right now for folks to take a step back and um, go back to the basics um, of what we know works to prevent the spread of this virus. Those basics, of course, are wearing masks, being mindful of group sizes, washing hands, and getting tested and staying home if you feel sick. We don't have to go back to the shelter-in-place mindset. We're past that victory, but it's how how do we take our tools now to protect ourselves and some other great examples would if you're going to go to a party or you're visiting vulnerable family members to get a covid test before going um, to make sure that you get your booster or vaccine if it's available on the booster front anyone 18 and older is eligible for the extra jab six months after a two-dose vaccine or two months after the one-dose johnson and johnson vaccine Franklin says a little less than half of eligible county residents have gotten a booster so far. Which is pretty good uptake overall. There are several opportunities, she notes, to get a shot at local vaccine clinics. And you can register for them online um, at the county website. Um, And once a month, we have the state's mobile um, vaccine clinic coming as well um, to help just booster um, the demand. On the testing front, Franklin also points to many options. There's at-home testing available now. Um, that is a really great way just for folks to get a good barometer when the, the risk is low um, or you're not symptomatic. And we have some free options at the county level, too. Based on sustained moderate COVID transmission throughout the county, Franklin notes, the countywide indoor mask mandate is staying in place through the end of January. Knowing that we're entering into the winter, there'll be increased respiratory illnesses, um, and we haven't really gotten a handle of the virus within our community. That transmission doesn't yet account for the impacts Omicron could have. With local wastewater testing and statewide testing monitoring for the variant, Franklin explains the region is equipped to detect if and when Omicron appears in the San Juans. When it comes to affordable housing development, there are sticks and carrots to force people or incentivize them to do it. This week, the town of Telluride took a step in the carrot direction, 
At their meeting this week, town council passed a first reading of an ordinance to increase the maximum floor area ratio for affordable housing and employee dwelling units. Uh, so this is a minor change to the land use code and it affects the commercial and historic commercial zoning. That's Ron Quarles, town planning and building director, speaking to council at their meeting on Tuesday. The floor area ratio is the ratio of a building's floor area to the size of the lot it's on. Currently in the commercial and historic commercial zones, the maximum ratio is 1.5 to 1. But it can go up to 2 to 1 if the increase is for affordable housing or employee units. And it can also go up to 2.25 to 1 for a planned unit development. Uh, The rationale is that a PUD often requires uh, public purpose, uh, which often includes affordable housing. The proposed ordinance would extend that higher ratio allowance of 2.25 to 1 to any development with affordable or workforce housing in the commercial and historic commercial zones. It just makes sense that if a public purpose is provided and affordable housing is provided, that the ratio should at least uh, reflect what we provide or what we allow in the PUD zoning. There was little discussion from council on the ordinance. Here's Mayor Delaney Young. I mean, in essence, it is, it's incentivizing developers to build affordable housing, but it is giving them a generous incentive to do it. Council unanimously approved the first reading. At this week's meeting, Council also approved water and wastewater rate increases for the coming year. Finance Director Kaylee Ranta outlined the rate increases for Council at their meeting. The main dynamic impacting utility rates is replacement of aging infrastructure and regulatory requirements. A previous rate study recommended increasing water rates by 5% and wastewater rates by 25%. Council is sticking to the 5% water rate increase, but bumped down the 25% proposal. So instead, wastewater rates are increasing by 12% next year. And this will give the town some time to research alternative funding options for the wastewater treatment plant improvements. Council unanimously passed the 2022 water and wastewater rate increases. La Cocina, the Shandoka Laundry Room, Heritage Plaza, the Conoco Station, and Norwood Town Hall. What do all of those places have in common? They all have publicly available automated external defibrillators, or AEDs. There's about 50 of them installed in various spots around San Miguel County. The devices are made to be used by non-professionals and can detect life-threatening heart issues and deliver electricity to address them. It is a very simple system. It provides not only verbal instruction, but pictographic instruction on where to place the pads, where not to stand or touch when the pads are, are deemed okay to, or the machines deemed okay to charge. Um, but it is an electric shock. That's Telluride Fire Protection District Chief John Bennett. He says the program has been successful. I think we're in the, the range of three or four saves in the last couple of years. And those saves performed by our public. But over the last few months, three of those AEDs have gone missing from the east end of the county. One that was on the east end of Telluride in the Gold Run area, one from Telluride Town Park, and one from Down Valley at the Placerville Park. So our community is essentially out of three opportunities for folks that might need a life-saving piece of equipment that is easily accessible, i.e. public access and very easy to use for even someone that's 
not been trained specifically on AED or CPR or any of that. You know, it certainly takes a special someone to steal a public access AED that's meant to help save a life for their own private use or private benefit. Susan Lilly is the public information officer for the Fire Protection District. The whole point of this is that our community members should feel comfortable going to these devices, knowing where they are, being able to go to them, and being able to use them. They're incredibly easy to use. They, they walk you through the instructions. You just open it and turn the button on, and it, it completely walks you through it. Bennett says the Fire Protection District is working with local law enforcement to try to find the missing AEDs. As far as his message for anyone who took them... Do the right thing. Either take them back to the location you borrowed them from, or certainly don't hesitate. And my take would be bring them by the fire station, even if you leave it at the front door. No questions asked, I'll move on. But even with three AEDs reported missing, there are still a fleet of them installed throughout the county. A map and list of where they are located is available on the San Miguel County Sheriff's Office website. It's some good information to know. It could one day help you save a life. For Aaron Reese, the Telluride Fire Festival is unlike anything in the area. It's a tiny taste of Burning Man, but not in the desert. I mean, we, we showcase art that really can't be seen anywhere else. Reese is the co-founder and executive director of the festival, which returns to the Box Canyon this weekend. Friday night will bring Radiant Revival, a circus and dance experience at the Palm Theater, featuring Homestead Circus Productions and dancers from Telluride and Boulder. Sort of a combination of dance and aerial, acrobatic, fear wheel, silk. So that's really unusual because we don't normally have that kind of show here. The show runs from 8 to 9 p.m. and students get in free with a paid adult. Saturday night, for the first time, the festival will head just past the Idorado Mill to the east end of the Box Canyon for resurrection. It's going to be like a wild block party. Just imagine flaming arts, fire performers, music, a bar, and then these 14,000 foot roughly mountain peaks. That's, it's going to be exceptional. And we have a really fabulous lighting designer, Tree Dawn Priest, with nice circuits lighting. And she's going to light the surroundings. It, it'll be really magnificent. Free shuttles will run from the courthouse to the ticketed event starting at 4.45 p.m. There will also be free workshops in juggling, stilt walking, and clowning available throughout the day on Saturday and Sunday. Pre-registration is required for those. Reese's final piece of advice for the festival? Come in costume. I know you have to be warm when you go outside, but think tutu, wigs, silly hats. Be a part of the art. For more information on the schedule and tickets for the 2021 Fire Festival, head to TellurideFireFestival.org. What is the future of skiing and ski culture? That's the big question writer Heather Hansman sets out to answer in her new book, Powder Days, Ski Bums, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow. KOTO spoke with Hansman about the book, and her journey in skiing. Heather, I'm going to start off with an open-ended question because this book, it's, it's, a, it's a wild book in that it's like part memoir, part journalism, part like major philosophical treatise on skiing. I mean, you really, 
you really get in there. And so I just, I'm going to start off with an open question. We're going to see where it goes. What role has skiing played in your life? That's really kind of at the heart of the book. This idea that, um, and I guess to give a little background, I'm somebody, I'm from the East Coast originally. I moved to Colorado to the Vail Valley when I was 21 to kind of chase this idea of being a ski bum and working in the mountains. In that one kind of arbitrary decision to kind of like, you know, because I had been obsessed with skiing as a kid, really has shaped my entire life since then. And that question at the heart of that, this idea of why something is sort of inherently stupid and pointless as skiing could kind of grip hold so tightly for me and for so many people as kind of the thread that wove through this this book, which is about kind of this idea of being a ski bum and living the dream and then why it's not always so dreamy. It felt important too to kind of like acknowledge the dark sides of that and the kind of not as shiny sides of that and how that can lead into this like constant sense of chase and this really hard kind of comparison factor. You know, one of the really hard things about for me, when I was living in a ski town, it was kind of like you look around and it seems like everyone else is kind of on this constant cycle of achieving and doing more and going harder and getting better. And that kind of looking around and being like, wait, am I not as good as everyone else? Well, I mean, that's like the, there's this like tension throughout the entire book, which I feel like is you saying skiing is this magical, spiritual thing from this first person experience you've had. That it is this thing that has materially changed your life. And then also looking at all the dark sides of it, both in terms of the social structures we build around it in terms of adrenaline seeking and, and kind of the, the negative hyper-masculinity that builds up around it, the exclusion of people of color. I mean, all of these things that really make skiing culture toxic in a lot of ways. And you're, you're battling with these two things, saying there's this thing I really love. There's all these things that are wrong with it. And then you, you, know, you also have this whole section on climate change and how that is just in the background really amping everything up. So just after doing all this reporting, I mean, what is your sense of what the skiing culture and the skiing industry needs to do to just be a sustainable industry and and have another 50, 100 years of of doing this thing? I think that's a really crucial question right now. And I think I I appreciate that you kind of see that tension because I feel like that's something that I, I struggled with and I still struggle with. But I think in a lot of ways, skiing feels a little anemic right now, both in terms of you know, like addressing climate in terms of what the pathways are into the sport in terms of who gets to access it because of pricing and who feels welcome too. And I think that that, like any kind of (laughs) big structural change, it kind of has to come from everywhere. It has to come from brands. It has to come from the community. It has to, you know, like I don't have a good, easy answer to that because I don't think it's an easy question. (laughs) There's no one kind of like, oh, let's flip the switch and we'll be good. I, and I couldn't tell this. I finished the book, and I actually I don't know the answer to this question, so I want to know your answer. I mean, to what extent is this book almost a eulogy for the ski bum, and to what extent is it trying to chart a path forward? I mean, how optimistic are you about the future of the ski bum, or do you just see a world where skiing just becomes dominated by upper-middle-class families going on vacation for the weekend? One of the things that was most interesting to me about doing the research is that pretty much everyone I talked to regardless of their age, was like, you know, I was the last generation that could really be a ski bum. I feel like there's always this kind of like, well, I'm just the last one who got in when the getting was good. So who's to say that that's not happening now, too? And I think there are, you know, there are pressures on it now that feel a lot harder than they have in the past, I think, even just in my experience. And I think there are real factors that make it that, you know, like climate. And that's the tension, too, right? In all of this, even though I know it's dumb and struggling, I'm still obsessed with it. And there are, yeah, it's like, I don't want that to disappear. 
That was writer Heather Hansman speaking about her recently published book, Powder Days, Ski Bums, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow. The book has also been selected for the Wilkinson Public Library's One Book, One Canyon program next year. To hear the full interview with Hansman from the November 30th episode of Off the Record, head to koto.org under the News tab. The Colorado Department of Transportation says the final lane on I-70 through Glenwood Canyon should reopen within the next week. CDOT was hoping to complete the landslide repairs in the Blue Gulch area before Thanksgiving, but it missed that deadline after discovering there was more damage than anticipated. Steve Harrelson is CDOT's chief engineer. We're working to remove that material. We're, we're trying to build um, both interim mitigation and more permanent mitigation to those mudslide areas. Harrelson says the state is trying to obtain more funding to improve the detour route around the canyon. He says it takes about five years for a burn scar like this one to fully heal and not be prone to mudslides. A group advising Colorado lawmakers on how to spend $400 million of federal aid on affordable housing has started voting on which projects should get funding. KOTO Scott Franz has more. The group shelved a proposal that would have helped first-time homebuyers get down payment assistance. Instead, there was more support for loans that would help build new units in places hardest hit by COVID-19. The task force also wants to help renters buy their mobile homes. Votes for specific dollar amounts will come at a meeting next Wednesday. The full legislature will still need to approve the recommendations. Meanwhile, some communities are not waiting for lawmakers to act. Voters in Crested Butte, Avon, and Uray approved new taxes on short-term rentals last month to boost affordable housing projects. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. For a lot of people in and around Telluride, one of the top issues on their minds is housing. And it's not just an issue for San Miguel County. KOTO has partnered with multiple stations in the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition to report a series of stories looking at economic mobility through housing to understand how the challenges and possible solutions are playing out across the region. Today, we're heading south. Durango's Fort Lewis College has seen one of the largest increases in their freshman class in years. It's putting a strain on campus student housing. And it comes at a time when the college is trying to tackle workforce housing issues for faculty and staff. Now, officials are turning to several possible solutions to create housing for both students and employees. Sarah Flower reports for KSUT. See what comes to mind is like definitely, you know, find like the access to housing. But it's like even when you do... Students at Fort Lewis College voice their concerns to the administration and local elected officials about housing issues on and off campus, a topic the college says has been on the forefront of their agenda. Steve Schwartz is the chief operating officer and vice president for finance and administration at the college. He says prior to COVID, the college hired a firm to do a demand study to assess affordable housing needs for faculty, staff, and students. That project was halted due to the pandemic. Now, Fort Lewis is picking up right where they left off. As part of Phase 1, they've hired Project Moxie, 
the same affordable housing company the city of Durango is using. Schwartz says they're in the process of looking at how to get out of this housing crisis. We've come up with a kind of a three-pronged solution. One would be to construct faculty staff housing on campus. Another one would be to enter into a a mortgage assistance program. And then the third one, which I think is actually the most exciting one, from my perspective, is certainly the solution that is unique maybe in small mountain communities is working with our regional partners to develop a solution. Those regional partners include the city of Durango, Durango 9R School District, and La Plata County. Schwartz feels strongly that this housing dilemma is not one that the college can solve alone. Instead of reinventing the wheel, Schwartz says that the college is looking at different programs across the country that have worked at other higher education institutions, like Colorado University and their mortgage assistance program. Jen Lopez, president of Project Moxie, is working with faculty to assess their needs and hear ideas around what would work best for them. I have a faculty advisory group that I meet with that's been guiding the process. This was a, what we consider a phase one, just understanding sort of the landscape of what's happening and how the challenges around housing for the college, how it's being experienced in the community, but also the opportunities. So yes, we have a problem. What are some of the solutions directly for the college and directly for the community? And mostly, how do we start leveraging resources across the community? Part of that leverage for Fort Lewis College is building on land that they already have. Schwartz explains ideas that the college has that would be more viable for the future of the institution. Longer term, what we're looking at is creating more apartment living on campus, because that's really, really where we're seeing the need on campus. We believe that we have enough residence hall stock is where our freshmen live, but it's really our upperclassmen that are now coming back and saying, hey, I want to live on campus. In the past, those students many times would have preferred to live in town. Now with the, the tightness in town in terms of housing availability, they've come back and said, you know, we really want to live on campus, but we're a little behind the eight ball in terms of building that capacity. So we've identified plots of land where we can build apartment complexes kind of on the east side of campus. That is our next step, and we're actually going to be starting to move on that into the the spring semester. This semester, the college is renting out over 100 units at a La Quinta Inn hotel and has roughly 60 units at 1304 apartments in town. Fort Lewis is also entering phase two of the process, which is hiring a college representative that would be the interface between Fort Lewis and the developer, which Schwartz is hopeful they will hire by the end of the year. The end goal is, I would like to say, within 18 to 24 months period, we would actually have something that would be habitable. In between there, you'd see it coming out of the ground and you know working through it. Big challenge is going to be just working out the contractual aspects of this. Reporting for KSUT News, I'm Sarah Flower. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around freezing. Friday expects sunny skies with a high near 50 degrees. Friday night should be partly cloudy with a low around 30 degrees. Saturday calls for sunny skies with a high in the mid-40s. Saturday night should be clear with a low near 30 degrees. This has been the news for Thursday, December 2nd. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.